Hello and welcome to a very special Rahula Stapa with Grayson Perry. This one is fantastic. We're still out on tour with Rahula Stapa coming to Sheffield on the 1st of December and Hull on the 6th of December. And then there are dates in London and Norwich already pending for 2020. Go to slash gigs or slash Rahula Stapa slash tour and you can find out exactly where we're coming. We'll be back at the Birmingham Podcast Festival at some point as well in 2020, and maybe a few more also. Uh, please go to gofasterstripe.com slash badges and become a monthly badger, uh, or go to gofasterstripe.com for lots of Christmas ideas of what you can get your friends, DVDs, downloads, books, all sorts of things that will help us to make more podcasts. Your support is very much appreciated. Anyway, let's sit back, relax, and enjoy this special audio only. Those video guys aren't getting this one, my fan friends. Rahula Stapa, Rahula Stapa, with Grayson Perry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who couldn't believe, like you, most of you, that prep wasn't even open today. What's going on? It's Richard Herring. Hello, London. Lovely to be back. How lovely to be here. Welcome to Richard Herring's London Smelliest Toilet Podcast. Um, just I've got a food poisoning again. That's what that's about. Uh, or something, some kind of, you know, let me know in the morning how, how you're getting on in the front row. I felt like I was going to vomit, but I have not vomited. Just, uh, seems, it seems to be okay now. Um, I mean... I've got the shits, is what I'm saying, which would, would have been fine if Gilbert and George were my guests this, for this show, wouldn't it? That would have been good. They would have loved that. Or Chris Philly, that would have been, you know, you cope with it. It's not going to be good for the one I've got. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you saw, I, I, we always go to Pret a Monjay before the show. I was hanging around, I haven't done the bit, I was hanging around uh, in Eat uh, because uh, Pret a Monjay is closed. I never usually go to eat, but they call it Rahalist by there. So that's, that's what I've got to do. I forgot to do that. But yeah, I've never seen so many people. That, it's just the one in the corner by Les Square Chew. Well, you all go for... Before, no, you can't afford to go like me. Uh, got a bit more cash to flash for my sandwiches. Uh, and uh, the number of middle-class people I saw walk up to the door, kind of... It was completely empty. Look at it, really confused. <laughs> and then not be able to walk away straight away. And I was one of them. Why is there no one sitting in any of the seats and there's no one serving in the tills? What's going on? Oh, it's closed. I see. So that was good. Yeah, so apart from being ill, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fine. Uh, and uh, just as a little change of pace, I just want to uh, pay tribute to uh, a friend of mine who very sadly died uh, this week called Tony Brennan, uh, who um, uh, is a year older than me, so that's not good, is it? And uh, for, for me and him, more for him, I'd say. Uh, but he was... He was the uh, founder of the Oxford U Workshop, which we sometimes talked about, which was the club underneath uh, the Oxford Union, where upstairs Boris Johnson was preparing for what he's doing now. <laughs> and downstairs, Chris, uh, Tony set up this um, uh, whole uh, club where people like Armando Iannucci and Stuart Lee, can't all be hits, and uh, <laughs> Al Murray, we all started together. He was also an he was a diplomat. He was the deputy ambassador to Australia. Uh, when I got married, uh, you know, my wife was obsessed with uh, having a Ferrero Rocher pyramid. Tony came in uh, as the ambassador. <laughs> Ferrero Rocher. Play. Uh, he, was also, he also played tiddlywinks. He was a Morris dancer. And he introduced cricket to the Czech, Czech Republic. I mean, what a full life that man had in his 53 years. But anyway, he's one of those kind of unsung heroes of, of comedy. Without him, I don't think um, things would have turned out quite how they did. I think... We, Certainly for all those people I mentioned, uh, it was uh, in, an incredible uh, influence. So uh, see you, Tony. Sorry about what's gone on there. That's a shame, isn't it? So um, it's a shame. So anyway, this is very exciting for me, uh, the guest I have this week, because out of all the guests I've ever had, I think this is the only person who will still... People will still know who it is in 100 years' time. That's why that's the, his stuff will still be around. People can go, so probably people in 100 years' time, maybe 200 years' time, are listening to this one. They're not listening to fucking Jimmy Cricket, are they? They're, they're listening... They'll be like, hello! So this is the one. This could, get, this could break me to the year 2200. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's very exciting uh, to have him here. He's probably best known for his appearance on This Morning with Holly and Phil. That's why we're here. 
all seen him on that. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Grayson Perry! Good evening. How are you doing, Grayson? Uh, yeah, I'm great. I'm really, I'm having a, I live a charmed life. Do you? you know, yeah, well, now I'm in my older age. You know, I'm nearly 60 now. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm what you call a late developer. So I'm enjoying, you know, every, every 10 years or so, I like to do something new. And, uh, yeah, so now I do a lot of... A lot, I, I do things like this. I go on stage and it's, like, lovely. Being, yeah, you've started... Being 60 and not giving a shit. <laughs> it's, it's, I want to be one of those little old ladies, <laughs> you know, who really, really call it out. You know, be... You, I can't... I've got, I haven't got time to bullshit anymore. Yeah. That's yeah. what I want to do. But, of course, what you think of as honest might just be someone trying desperately to be shocking. Yeah. <laughs> that is the problem... <laughs> the problem with both art and comedy that's where there's there's there's, there's many places where uh, our worlds are going to meet um i did enjoy watching you on uh, holly and phil it's uh, nice that i took my teddy yeah that's why i was well, you know i was hoping i saw you said it's very rare for him to come out he doesn't come out very often that was incredibly rare but that was the peak of my career so obviously <laughs> i took him along yeah. to, to, to mark that moment you know i'd come from you know from nowhere you know, I was one of those people who used to be poor. And, uh... It was funny to see you uh, talking to Holly Willoughby. She, you, like, blew her. She, you were blowing her mind, which is the second best place to blow her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hang on, hang on. We're not in the 70s now. Now there is her spirit. Yeah. Uh, and, uh... Uh, she goes, if you, do you think so much about all these things? You think about everything. Do you try to make people think about stuff? You go, yeah, that's sort of that's, that's sort my of job. That's sort of what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah and it, it, but you it, made it, her think. Yeah, because one one of the things you know, with my wife, you know, she's a great thinker as well. And she, you know, one of the things you have to learn is that because you spend your life thinking a lot about stuff, that it, often the simplest, most obvious thing to you can be a revelation to someone yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Because we've all got our specialism. I'm sure everybody in the audience has got their specialism. You know, it might be the kind of 715 from Nantwich and yeah. the seating arrangements <laughs> on it or whatever it is. But, it's it, it, you know, we've all got our specialisms yeah. and it's a revelation to someone else. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you've got to kind of understand that they're not up to speed. My big bad habit, often, is telling jokes where I only tell the punchline. Because <laughs> I assume everybody else is like, up to speed on it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. And... Well, it was interesting, you see, I, I wanted to talk about Alan Measles, first of all, which is your childhood teddy bear, we yes. will know, um, who did make it to this, this morning couch. Uh, but you were talking to them about how you, you saw it as a kind of godlike figure, which is... is... But he, if, he's the perfect metaphor for God. Yeah. Because religion, I hate to tell anybody in, in, in the audience about this, but life is meaningless, right? <laughs> and... Uh, and <laughs> And religion, you know, why people get passionate about religion is because they believe in stuff, you know. And belief is a kind of accumulation of emotion over a while. You know, like, yeah. so people are brought up with religion through their whole lives and they get into the physical and mental habits of that, of that religion. And so they're really invested in it. And so they really... So if people ask me what I believe in, I always say gravity. <laughs> End of argument. End of argument. <laughs> you know, that's it. But... You know, so people get very hot under the collar about belief. Yeah. And my teddy bear, you know, he's been with me my whole life. He's my, the only thing I have from my childhood. He was an incredibly significant thing in my childhood. He was the metaphor in my childhood for a surrogate father. And so when I had a show in Japan quite a while ago now, and I wanted to do a whole works about religion, I thought, who's going to be my God? And of course, Alan Measles. And so I use him as this perfect metaphor for God because he's something that has stayed with me through childhood, like the kind of repetitive patterns of a real religious experience. Yeah. And I, you know, and so he's he's perfect for it. You know, I've invested emotion into an imaginary character, <laughs> imaginary character, <laughs> like <clears throat> God. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, my daughter, who's uh, coming up to five, her first toy was this monkey, and it was the first toy she had, and it was the first toy she named, and she named him Oo-Oo. And then the other day, and I really, you know, and I 
I, I, the other day said, I don't want to have Uru anymore. I don't like it. He, he, was he was cast Is out. Is she converting? Yeah, she was going to... But I actually felt so bad for Uru. <laughs> uh, I've, I've taken Uru upstairs and put him on my window ledge above where I work. Because I, so, I can't bear the idea that she's... She's yeah. turned away from him because it is because you also you're imbuing their childhood into that thing as well. If as a parent, do you find but, as a parent that things are coming up for you that happened to you at when you were their age? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a very common thing, and it happened to me big time when my daughter got to about five because right. I went through a lot of ups, upsets in my childhood yeah. when I was about that age. And so when she got hit five the kind of physicality of your daughter, you know, the fact that she's this little character of this size and she's thinking these sort of thoughts and she's doing these sort of games. Suddenly you're there, you're there with them and you're spending so much time with them. And then suddenly you're drawn in and suddenly, <laughs> I remember what it was like to be you. <laughs> and then, oh my God, it's a nightmare. And then you're off to therapy with you, off to therapy. <laughs> you know, and that's how it happens. Yeah. You know, and we all do that. And yeah. that is to watch any prospective parents in the audience. Watch that happening when you, you know, if you were, if, if your, if your dad died when you were eight, watch it when your kid gets to eight. Yeah. I really warn you. Yeah. Well, I think for, I think, I think being four was when I was happiest. That's my happiest time when I was four in my whole life, I think. So I'd sort of envy my daughter for being four again. Uh, my son, who's two, the other morning said poo poo wee wee bottom, which is what I said from the age of two to about 24. That's so how you make your living. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he actually used the same phrase that I use, so that has somehow passed through to this. So, you know, it's just fun for me when they start uh, get making jokes and stuff. They are your children. Yeah. You know, they will be you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> Um, right, I mean, there's so I've got too much to talk to you about. Uh, let's see where I'm going to jump in first of all. Um, uh, well, let's go back. I'm kind of in, I'm always interested with guests, the sort of stuff before they were famous. And as you've said, you kind of sort of became famous in Late. your 40s, yeah. yeah. So, but before that, you were you were you were in squats when you were in your 20s, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I came up to London because you know you could then I could squat in Camden. I squatted in Camden next to the Camden. What well, was the Camden Palace then for four years? Yeah, and uh, you know it was a very rich time. It was the time of you know just on the back of New Romantics, and just before the kind of uh, the kind of ecstasy craze hit. And it, London was more bohemian and dirtier and emptier then, you know, and it was a. It was a different place. It felt more amateur. I think <laughs> that's the thing. You know, everybody sort of did stuff. It felt like everything did stuff for themselves a bit. Now, nowadays, people feel it feels more professionalised now. Like, if, if anything you want in the world, there's some arsehole out on the internet who'll do it for you for money. You know, like, oh, I need, I need a bum wiper. Oh, hang on, I'm just googling. Oh, look, here's a bumwiping.co.com. You know, just ring them up and they'll yeah. come around and wipe your fucking ass for yeah. you. <laughs> I might try that after the show, the way things are going. <laughs> That's a free business idea for anyone who wants it. I bet there's people that are paid to do it. <laughs> so you share, do you share a squat with Boy George? Is that, is that true? No? You've been reading Wikipedia again. I have, yeah. Yeah, that is... I, I, in some ways, I'm becoming attached to that now. Yeah, I'm beginning okay. to think that I did live in a squat with Boy George. <laughs> Uh, no, because uh, my, a good friend of mine, uh, I, I kind of bumped into B B Boy George a few times before he became Boy George, when he was George O'Dowd, because he was sharing a squat with a friend of mine. But uh, I shared a squat with Marilyn, actually, his okay. sidekick. Yeah, yeah, for a while. But he was like quite, uh, quite druggy at that point. And he was the world's worst driver. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he's quite a sweet guy. You know, he, was very, he was a sort of interesting guy, but he was like quite sort of what we call it. Uh, he was quite sort of impulsive. Yeah. You know. And so as a driver, he was quite scary. He was the first person of, of, in our group who got a car. He's like... <laughs> <laughs> like that the whole time, yeah. And again, you used to be able to drive around London like a lunatic in the old days. Yeah. And, and, and you could get caught speeding on Piccadilly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got caught speeding on my motorbike on the Mall. Right. And the, and, 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 and the policeman who stopped me said he thinks I was doing 80. Right. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Well, <laughs> or not? Well, let's talk about your motorbikes because um, I've, I've been listening to Descent of Man on uh, audiobook, and um, it's quite well because I've, I've got a. I used to do a sketch about me um, trying to be become a real man by passing a motorcycle clothing shop and going in and pretending I had a motorbike and buying <laughs> and trying to buy the clothes. I, I think I think that you should have to actually 
prove your emotion. <laughs> one of the things, you know, where a man, you know, the, the kit, a lot of the kit that yeah. men like to wear, yeah. it's kind of ersatz functional. Yeah. You know, they love a watch that's got a load of buttons on it that they might one day go up Everest <laughs> or dive to the bottom of the ocean on. You know, and they love loads of pockets or one day they might have to get a compass or a knife or a gun out of their pockets <laughs> or whatever. And so... That idea that, you know, the motorbike jacket has become a staple, a staple of fashion for everyone. Yeah, yeah. As a motorcycle, I fucking hate that. You know, because it's a cool out, item of clothing that you can, you can just go into fucking Zara <laughs> and buy, a, buy it. And me, me man, I'm, t- I'm risking life and limb on the back roads yeah. of Essex to earn my stripes as a motorcyclist. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, it's because it, that book is about uh, masculinity, obviously, and, and what, what that means. But that's sort of interesting because I think like there's a part of me I'm not I've never been a very good man in terms of <laughs> being being masculine. Yeah, you don't um, want to be. It's not that no. necessarily attractive. No, no. But I think masculinity is like masculinity is like woodwork, yeah. right? So some people it's their job, so they need it all the time. You know, so if you're doing a tough manual job, you know, where you need to be butch, then you probably need it, and that's a relatively few people. Yeah. Some people, it can be a hobby. Like me, I like to be in a masculine. I put on my motorbike jacket to go out at the weekend. You know, I wouldn't take it into the office. <laughs> and some people never have to do woodwork. Yeah. You know, and so they don't need it. <laughs> and so that's what you know. It's just a, it's an option. We can just pick up and like say in your wardrobe. You know, when you're going through your racks. You know, like you know, I've got enormous racks. <laughs> and. and yeah, I'll, do, I'll be that today. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's interesting because obviously there's the other side of you that uh, cross dresses. Oh, yes. Uh, and. <laughs> well, you know, but I, 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 like I'm wearing now. Uh, well, you're, sort of half, you're halfway there. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> this is what most women wear most of the time yeah. now it's trainers, trousers, yeah. and a fleece. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, often when you're a transvestite, you're the only one in a skirt. <laughs> In fact, when, when I used to go on these weekends when a hundred of us, when a hundred of us would get together in a hotel uh, and, you know, dress up and have a nice time, and uh, if somebody started wearing trousers and still playing the female role, we'd go, ooh, they're going the whole way. <laughs> because that was realistically female as yeah. opposed to a kind of fantasy which a lot of... Because as a transvestite, I'm, I'm, you know, we're the most sexist people in the world. Right. We depend on gender differences. Yeah. Because we get off on wearing the wrong clothes. Yeah, know? so if it all becomes fluid, you're screwed. If, yeah, it's boring. Who wants to live <laughs> in a kind of androgynous world where we all wear grey tracksuits and matching fleeces and go off to B&Q together? <laughs> you know, oh, yuck. No, I, wa- I want to live in a Stepford, fi- Stepford wives world where I can wear little... Peter Pan collars and fris- prissy dresses, and people go, Look at you, you're in the wrong clothes. And I go, <laughs> But it's amazing how much that, that has changed again in the last 20 or 30 years. So, like 20 or 30 years ago, I remember there used to be, a, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a shop in Houston where men could go and dress up as women. Yeah, and transformation. Yeah. It's, called. it's one of the first kind of, like, uh, yeah, really kind of, uh, what we call it, uh, consumerist transvestite outlets, you mm. know, where and it, it, I felt it was good that it was there because, it, you know, people who felt really nervous about dressing up, they could go there and they could get made up and, and, and there was a wardrobe that they could... Try. But I always thought it was a little bit exploitative of the kind of fears of... Yeah. Because when I used to go to these weekends, you know, there would always be a couple of old transvestites there who did not give a shit, you know. And I used to be, when I was young, I used to be really envious of them. Now I am that man! I do not give a shit! And it is glorious, you know, being that person you could put on. Whenever I'm working with students and they're designing my outfits, you know, when I, I give them a briefing beforehand, I always say, OK, I want you to design me an outfit where I have to take a deep breath before I leave the house, <laughs> you know, and that you know, and 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 they, and they often do, you know. Yeah. You know you're like you, you know, passing helicopters will come by and go, look, there's a man in a dress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's great, you know, yeah. because as men, what we're often doing, I often describe men's clothes as portable bird hide. <laughs> men want to hide behind their kind of khaki. You know, khaki jackets and grey trousers and, yeah. and black sweatshirts, you know, and they want to hide because they don't want anybody to look at them because men are the ones that look 
So they're like looking out of their bird hide yeah. at the world. And, you know, women are the ones that they want to look at. And so men are the, the subject and women are the object. And so that idea, well, often what transvestites want is a bit of that kind of object action. Yeah. You know, they want to be the one that's looked at. And that's quite nice. Yeah. You know, a lot of men, I'm sure a lot of men, men come up to me quite often when I'm dressed up and they say, ooh, I'd really like to be able to wear a dress like that. And I go, it's not fucking illegal. <laughs> you know, you can do it. <laughs> Coward. <laughs> Do you, th- do you think you're part of the change? Because obviously, once you once you were became famous and you were yeah out, out there, that it's not it's not the you know there was that sniggering and there was that weirdness behind all of the yeah. That and sort of I, I'm before. quite happy to embrace the sniggering. Yeah, you know because but it's not so it doesn't happen so much now. I would say no, it's cool now. People people you know I think people often have fear in themselves. So they've got their own anxieties because of whatever they've got, they're, 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 they're being vulnerable. Yeah. And for men particularly, that can be quite a challenge to be yeah. vulnerable. But it's a good thing to be vulnerable. And so they're, they're showing something about themselves that's very tender. And so they're very nervous when they go out. And what, they, what I pleasantly find now is that the England, Britain, uh, as a country, is pretty tolerant. Yeah. You know, I've got all over the country in a dress. I've been all over the world in a dress. And you know, some places, the only place I've been so far where I'd have personal security <laughs> when I was wearing a dress was Croatia. Okay. Yeah, I was doing a gig in Croatia and I, they literally, the guys turned up in the black Mercedes, big burly guys and said, you know, shuffle me out of the hotel and shuffle me into the gig. Right. Because, you know, that was a place where machismo still had a lot of currency. Yeah. And do you think that, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of feel like the very, the people who are the most, who want to be the most masculine are the most feminine, who kind of conform to the stereotypes of those things, are the people who, you know, they're sort of buying into it because they, they fear that, they fear the vulnerability, they fear kind of being allowed to be who they really are. And the people who, who push it the furthest and are, are least comfortable with well, stepping outside. Well, I think also there's it. a lot of pressure now, you know, with the internet. The, yeah. the internet, one of the, you know, as we all, we've all experienced, the internet has a sort of algorithmic proclivity to polarise people. And that, that happens just as much in gender yeah. as well as anything else. And so the idea about what is feminine and what is masculine gets kind of by the nature of the algorithms in, in, of the internet. It kind of polarises. So men now, they want a six-pack, don't they? They yeah. want little lines that go <laughs> on their tummies that go that way and that way, yeah. you know, because that's a kind of way of understanding I am a man. Yeah. You know, when, I, when I talk to young kids now and I say, when I was at school, I never talked about my body. They're, like, shocked. Mm. You know, like... There was this group of young kids and they, they were shown um, this old film from the 60s and Alan Bates was like the romantic lead in it. And when he took his shirt off, they all laughed. <laughs> he was a pudgy, ordinary, nice-looking man from yeah. the 60s. Yeah. But he wasn't ripped, you know, he wasn't yeah. hench. So that now it's all, you know, they, they, they look like action man, yeah. you know, from the waist up. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe the waist down, we don't know for sure. <laughs> But the thing is that that gender thing is very interesting, and 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 you know I think it always they were, well for a long time anyway the the babies you know boy and girl pink and blue all that sort of people well, have been you trying say to, a long time yeah but the pink is a very recent the pink, yeah. the color gender thing is very recent only since the war probably yeah, yeah. You know, it's really recent thing people think it's like but you go back through history and it was the other way round and it's it's completely arbitrary yeah, yeah. Uh, like most gender stereotypes actually. And they can change, you know, over a generation that could completely shift. And that's good, you know. Yeah. But I quite like them because, you know, I think that who has sexual fantasies about equality? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, that's something I'm always interested in, you know. Who, because there's always someone bending someone else over the desk, <laughs> aren't there? You know. It's true! You know it is! Because our sexuality is always out of date, isn't it? You know, because our sexuality forms in our childhoods. And so it's based on the sexual and gender mores of that period. So mine is set in the 60s, you know, a very different world. Yeah. And that, you know, so we're always a little bit um, politically incorrect when it comes... You know, there was a famous feminist who said that women protest in the day about things they fantasise about at night. Yeah. Because, you know, that's a dark thought, I know, and men maybe do the same thing. Uh, but, you know, we are, we are, you know, we're, our sexuality is one of, the, one of the ways that we find out what's really going on. There's three ways, I think. It's humour, dreams, and sex. They're the place that really tell us what we're thinking. 
We can't pretend. You can't pretend that something's not turning you on or is turning you on. You can't pretend if something's funny or not, and you cannot control your dreams. Yeah. So, you know, but, you know t- pay big attention to those three things because that is telling you who you are. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, sorry, to, sorry to put a bit of a downer. No, it's all right. We'll, 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 pick, we'll pick stuff up again. Yeah. It's all part of the ritual. When people always say, oh, yeah, yeah, be yourself, I always want to go, oh, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they're both, I mean, now, there's a lot of, there's, there are a lot of meeting points between comedy and, and, and art. And uh, but for me, uh, I, don't, there's, I don't there's enough comedy in art. I think you, you, there's wit in your work and there's comedy in your work. And, yeah. I, think, and I don't think enough artists... I think too many artists take themselves too seriously. Or I agree to, with you 110%. And the art I like is the art that can make you, you know, laugh, revolt for you, which is the comedy I like as well. Yeah, we're all here yeah. tonight to have a bit of a laugh. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the most profound and joyful and human things we can do. You know, and often comedy gets this idea you know, that, that, that there's this sort of downer on entertainment. And I think people go to freaking art galleries on their day off. <laughs> you know, it's not like you're going there, oh, I've got to do my homework now and I'm going to go to an art gallery to be a better... No, people go there on a Saturday afternoon to have a nice time. Yeah. And so humour is a part of that. It's, you know, and when I was doing the summer show for the Royal Academy last year, one of the people there said that one year the Daily Telegraph art critic sent the theatre critic to review the show because he said it's comedy. Right. And I was like, fuck off. <laughs> you know, it's... Humour is, you know, it's very... You know, for me, it's been one of the... You know, I love comedy, I love a comedian, and I love a good laugh, and it's, it, it's, it's absolutely central to my humanity. Yeah. And to dismiss it like that, and for the art to somehow not play with it... There are loads of artists who are funny, Yeah. but... It does take itself seriously because seriousness became the currency of the art world. Right. You know, like in the 60s and from since then, there was a kind of arms race of seriousness. <laughs> you know, I'm more serious than you. And often how you see it is in the language. You know, they start using really arcane language to show that you're more serious and more intellectual and you've, you've got a PhD or an MFA or whatever. And it's bollocks a lot of it because in the end, if it's good and it's, you know, rich and inspiring, then that should cut through all that. Yeah. And I think comedy is part of being human. And so I put loads of comedy in my art all the time. And it's a good way of making people think. I, I have, I've been a part of a transgressive art festival, so I've, with, with what some people think is comedy, uh, <laughs> I play myself at snooker and, uh, and uh, in an audio podcast and commentate on it and do all, and to see who is the best out of me, me one or me. <laughs> and then the, uh, the, the Festival of Transgressive Art asked me to come along and do that. Transgress- the fact it's setting itself up as transgressive, <laughs> that's what's worrying me. Well, the transgress- the, all the other transgressive artists didn't like me because I, I, didn't do- I didn't hammer my genitals to anything. Or <laughs> my genital- I, mean, my- I didn't even get my cock out at all. I just played yeah, snooker against myself. That's the kind of go-to place to yeah, go yeah, for yeah. it. It's always in the nude. There's always a candle involved. <laughs> and a bit of projection, you know. Yeah. And- so I was too transgressive for the, by just being boring and playing snooker against myself. It was a very exciting... I don't know if some of you may have seen it now. I wouldn't say you were particularly original in being boring as a performance <laughs> artist. That's, that ground has really been covered. Okay. Well, the other thing I do, I do another podcast in where I'm trying to clear all the stones off of a 35-acre field that I walk my dog round off. I always wondered what your tweets were about. Yeah. <laughs> so I was clearing stones and, and trying to make a wall that's visible from space. Uh, over the next 20 or 30, 40 years. I believe that's a lie, though, isn't it? The world of China can be seen from space. Yeah, uh, yeah I think it is a lie. Yeah, yeah. It's a lie. Sorry, kids. But mine it's will be... It's a great metaphor, but... Mine it... will be visible from space. But, you know, that... <laughs> so my comedy art is about the, the uh, competition between ourselves and between the environment. Those are what those two things are about. What? The environments of what? Well, s- some stones. <laughs> I'm trying to conquer... I'm trying to... I mean, you need to listen to it. I can't just explain. It's, not, it's like me going, oh, tell us about that pot you did. I'm not going to do that, am I? Tell us what that was about. I'm not no. going to do... You're not going to do that, are you? No, I'm not. So I'm not going to explain my art to you. Listen to all 45 episodes of it. <laughs> and then you can tell me what you think it's about. It's, it's 45 hours of your life you're not getting back. That's what I'm... And there's more to come. It's never going to end. But uh, Johnny Vegas is a, is a comedy comedian who, who did pottery. Yes, he and, is. And has been displayed in museums. You remind me of Simon Munnery quite a lot. Do you know Simon Munnery? I've heard of him. Yeah. There's a, there's a spirit of Simon Munnery. Oh, really? That's good. 
Uh, he has a joke about where someone he'd been reviewed and says is this closest where comedy gets to meet art, and he says so he does a big routine about how they can't those two things can't therefore can't possibly oh, I touch. Think so. I think they but, can yeah. meet. Yeah, they do meet. Yeah, because you know you have the sublime and you have things that you can live with and that are kind of last. I was, I was very flattered by your introduction. You know, that, <laughs> that you'll be, still be talking about me in however long time. And yeah, there is you do. But that's that. true, though, isn't it? Your work will. Be, I mean, I think that's only because it's a good investment. Yeah, but that's what I mean. I think I was thinking. I was thinking with your latest thing, getting you know, it's all about the, the rich buying it, and you're convinced. But it's like you are putting your work in an arc. You're using the rich as an arc that will take your work to the future, regardless, won't it? Because they. But I love them. I love them super rich people. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, still on uh, anybody not far from here in Mayfair. Uh, yeah. uh, super rich interior decoration, which is my name of my show, and I basically take the piss out of the people that then buy my work. <laughs> But, you know, Nam June Pike, if you go to this show on at the Tate at the moment by Nam June Pike, video artist, he famously said, an artist's job is to bite the hand that feeds him, but not too hard. <laughs> and I've taken that as my kind of motto for this show. Yeah. And done it well. Well, you're saying you put, like, art people you know buy art's names onto things, knowing that they will then buy the thing with their name on it. Is that Yeah, I don't even have to write it down now. The other day, some, I was at the show talking, like, leading a group of rich people around my show. And uh, I've done this carpet, because someone asked me if I wanted to do a carpet. And I, the, the, my immediate thing, I'm making a show about rich people, I want to make a carpet, what am I going to put? I know, I'm going to put a homeless person on it. So they, the rich people have to walk on a homeless person. <laughs> I know, it's quite, it's, that's a pretty challenging idea, isn't it? And I've called it Don't Look Down. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's a, it's a very nice carpet, right? And somebody asked me, Somebody asked me, Who would, where would be your ideal place for this carpet to end up, right? Yeah. And I said, I want to see Jerry Hall and Rupert Murdoch making love <laughs> on this carpet. But then, Jerry Hall came into the show and bought a piece. I don't think she bought the carpet. She was right. measuring up for it. Though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, but it, you know, it's... It's a dichotomy, but it's it, it, you know those people are paying. You, you're becoming rich as a result of the. You're becoming a part of those guys as a, as a result of your art. But you, those are your. You know, you, we. I can. I can't buy one of your works, can I? Is there anything I could afford? I don't know. It depends how well you do it. You don't play stadiums, though, do no, you? No, I don't know. No, we can't. No. <laughs> Have you ever thought? <laughs> Have you ever thought about making something and raffling it to all the people who can't afford to buy? Oh yeah, I always, in all my shows, there's there's price points. Yeah. Like for the show, if you go to the show in Mayfair, you could buy a yoga mat I've designed. Okay. Because I, you know, I associate that with the kind of Gwyneth Paltrow end of the market. Yeah. <laughs> and that's less than a hundred quid. Or you could buy a handbag. Yeah. You know, that's quite expensive. The handbag. But I always <laughs> like to have affordable things. You know, that you could buy in my shows. I think yeah. it's important. Yeah. But it, it, it's, I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think, well, it's, well, let's get back to the, the, the fact that, that your work will be in, in art galleries, if art galleries I are still I hope. There. I mean, well, there's loads of no art that was really fashionable in the past that nobody knows anything about now. So you don't depend on it. For me, you know, when people ask me about my legacy, I always say, I do not give a damn. You know, I, if I die, I, you know, it'll be just be like before I was born. Yeah. And you can put it all in a skip. Yeah. doesn't worry me. I, I mean, won't no be looking down from heaven going, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no one is going to put it in a skip, though, is it? Because it's... They've so paid it's a lot of money for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's art in itself. Uh, to throw it, to get one of those... I mean, what I like about the, the pots, I think, is that... I mean, there, you're working in a fragile medium, so presumably... You... It's fragile in some ways. Yeah. But, you know, how, what is archaeology? You know, archaeology depends on ceramics. Yeah. Because it lasts forever. You know, I, I've got a pot, as long as you don't break it, I could bury one of my pots. I've got a pot in my show, for instance, that's called Vote Tory. Yes. That's got all pictures of Tories on it and unicorns. <laughs> and I could bury that in the garden and in a two millennia, I could ding it up, it would look exactly the same. Yeah, that's true. So it's not fragile no. in some ways. But... Is that, has anyone ever bought something and then knocked it over and smashed it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, 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 one of my close friends bought a pet piece early on and her, her son was playing football in the front room. <laughs> and she sort of heard this, you know, like, ah! And then she had it all glued back together. It looks great. You know, it's all kind of, it, it suits it. But when, you, when you're making them, because some of them go wrong, right? Because you, you're working on this, you're working in a kiln and that's... 
Yeah, but I've, I've been doing it for, you know, God knows how long. Right. Now. So I've, I'm quite good. I've belt and braces and things don't tend to go wrong that often. Okay. Nowadays, it's more in the conception that goes wrong. And I've got it, I've had the idea. I mean, I'm sure when you're working on things, you have to abandon. It's quite tough. You know, if, if you're a professional, you invest a lot of time into something. You don't want to abandon that time. And so I try to nip. I've got very good now at nipping it in the bud when right. it's going wrong. I can feel it going wrong. And so I kind of go, mm -mm, time to abandon now and change because I can, um, I can imagineer it yeah. into the future. But you smashed, you used to smash one I used to smash a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Uh, uh, you, next time you want to smash one, just send it to me. I'll just, I'll look after it for you. Well, what I did, what I did, what I did with a lot of them was yeah. I, had the, I had like a load of pots that I smashed and I, and I then made these little reliquaries you could buy in the Tate Modern right. with a little bit of my pots oh, yeah, in, yeah. like a holy relic. Yeah. And I sold those for 35 quid a piece. <laughs> just do the maths. <laughs> you were breaking more than you were making. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. I was it. breaking more than even. <laughs> but I mean, you know, if you're going to make... The money's interesting, and that's what this latest ex exhibition's about. Yeah, because, you know, it's like, uh, it's like Michael Caine. Yeah. You know, I've just had my house done up, and people say to me, have you seen your show? And I go, well, I've seen the extension it's built. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but yeah, seriously, I... I, I, I it, it, the art world, we do need the money to operate yeah. of private individuals. And you go back, Michelangelo had to be paid. Yeah. And so people often, they, I think they're a bit hypocritical when they kind of poo-poo the kind of commercial side of the art world. I mean, and also I think in the present political climate to widen out this conversation, I think hypocrisy is an underrated quality. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, compromise, centrism, you know, difficulty, nuance. These are things that are being trampled in the, the present political climate. And I think that uh, people have got to understand, you know, somebody famously once said, uh, to, you know, to, you're only truly adult when you can hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that there, there is something about this, you know, because people, because you know, centrism, for instance, is like a kind of insult. And it's often, someone described it on Twitter as... Uh, People who are left of centre who are hated by the extreme left. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's this idea that it's, it's a swear word now. And I yeah. think, actually, if you go back not that far, politicians of every stripe, when they stood up in Parliament or wherever, they were kind of speaking for the nation. And now they, no way do they fucking do that now. No. You know, they're speaking for a very narrow bandwidth of people. And I think that that's a shame, you know, because... You know, people get criticised for stepping... Someone, I was interviewing someone for my, for my next TV series and he said um, he was a kind of uh, well-known uh, sort of law, lawyer in America and he said, he said people... He said, I'm a, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool, uh, progressive, liberal guy, he said, but uh, the, the woke people now, he said, they've got, a, they've got a list of 20 things and if you only agree with 19 of them, then you're a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it's like now. You know, yeah. you're not allowed to be nuanced or difficult or contradictory. And I think that that's difficult. That's very inhuman of the world. It's become, it's Puritans. They're like Puritans. Both sides, they're modern Puritans. And I, I worry, you know, we're not allowed to be complicated and contradictory and hypocritical and nuanced. It's the worst crime now on Twitter to be a hypocrite. Oh, no, you said this. <laughs> like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> Well, I think weirdly art, even more than comedy, is a place where you're still, you know, allowed to challenge taboos. Your work's obviously challenging various, uh, various subjects that, like, again, I mean, it's. I think treating it sort of comedically, but not not quite comedically. That's why, you know. But if I think with comedy, you can still do most subjects, but with art, it seems that people go, "Oh, it's art," so therefore we'll allow that to to go without being too. Yeah, I've got to make something that people want to put in their house. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. That's the thing I've got to do. Is that you know my job is to make an is to make a, uh, a sensual, attractive, covetable object. That's what I'd like to yeah. do for myself. You know, that's what I enjoy making. I want to make an object where I look at it and go, nice thing. <laughs> you know, and I you know put it up in my house. It'd yeah. Be nice. well, how do you do, how do you decide if you're you're going to keep something personally or do you not, do you not keep very much of your? Own? I've got you know because I do a lot of multiples like prints and tapestries yeah. and the cast iron things. They're all multiples so. 
I, I always keep one so I can show it because then I don't have to borrow it back from the people. <laughs> borrow it back because people, you know, they, they, might, they don't want to lend it back sometimes. No. So it's nice. So I, I have a stock that I can put on a show with. Yeah. And you're doing, are you doing next year, uh, going back to your very early work? Yes. In yeah. Bath. Yeah. Starting in Bath, going around the country. Uh, yes, it's called uh, Grace and Perry, the pre-therapy years. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you ask me what the biggest kind of influence on my work over the last 20 years. It's been psychotherapy. You know, I'm married to a psychotherapist. She wasn't my therapist, I hasten to add. But you know, that way of looking at the world. So that had a huge impact on my work. And it's been an interesting experience. We put Because I was very bad at documenting my early work, so I didn't have any photographs of a lot of it. I just had, like, a few little bits of photocopied paper with the list of works on and stuff. Right. And so I put a call out on the med in the media for works, and they all came stuffing... Shuffling out of the shadows, these right. words, and yeah, they, they, and what I, what I love looking at them is like, oh, well, I was the same person, but not worked out. You know, I, the same impulses. You know, I was still a bit of an, you know, like wanting to needle people, and I was still a pervert. You know, and I was still interested in the same sort of things, but not kind of quite so worked out as I am now. So it's been interesting, and I'm sort of compassionate for that younger me now, which is you know what you learn in therapy to be compassionate. And do those people who bought... I mean, if they bought those early works for 30 quid or something like oh, that... Oh, yeah, they're in... They're, they're, they're quids in. <laughs> no, they are, you know. I mean, recently, I, you know, we, we had our house done up recently and the builders found, like, a dozen plates up in the loft. Right. Yeah, which I'd made in the 80s. That practically paid for the fucking... <laughs> have you got to the point where you're having a meal at a restaurant and you just knock up a, a cup or something for them to... Here's a bit. Just sign a napkin <laughs> yeah. nowadays, yeah. So that Picasso was supposed to have done that, wasn't he? Just drew a... Drew yeah, that's a the bit. famous thing. And I think that... I, I mean, I have a phrase that I say, you know, I now have what I call Picasso napkin syndrome, which is that, you know, and any person who's in the public eye... But you, you become a bit self-conscious. And, and, and you're a creative person, Richard, so you wouldn't understand this, that... You know, to be creative, you need to feel relaxed, you know, because you've got to let your kind of the conduits of your creativity flow free, and you're not to be nipped up. Your your kind of artistic sphincters are not <laughs> are not to be nipped. Yeah. And 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 so if you've got that feeling in your head that there's a kind of amphitheatre of observers in your head going, oh, what's he up to now? <laughs> oh, look at him! Look, he's a famous artist. <laughs> oh, it's quite. You really have to. You have to kind of. You have to look, a lot of artists they, they really can't do with that, and they and they and it doesn't it ruins their career. Yeah. You've got to learn to be a public, like communicator. I mean, I I enjoyed it. You know, I've always enjoyed it. I was lucky in that, like I say, I came to prominence well after I'd had therapy on the whole. But actually, I was in the middle of therapy when I had my big moment in the yeah. Turner Prize, which sort of like flipped me into the public eye. Yeah. I mean, because you had a, a sort of troubled childhood. Troubled, yes, troubled. Oh, yes. I, I had anxiety before it was fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> Which Alan Measles helped you, helped you through. You, had, you know, you had an unpleasant... Yeah, God bless him. He still... Yeah. I, I reinstalled him yesterday because in, in, we moved back into our house. I installed him in his little throne in my bedroom, looking down on me <laughs> benevolently. <laughs> With his sidekick, which doesn't get... He doesn't get such a good press, his sidekick. Tortoise. Okay. The knitted tortoise. He was always his kind of dependable but dour sidekick. He's Captain Haddock to Tintin. Um, and He's Stuart Lee to his Richard Herring. Yeah, exactly. Alas, as official. Yes, people in 300 years' time, that is the right way around. <laughs> they won't be talking about either of us. I mean, but I, I, I do think, you know, this is... The, that potentially... The, well, I've got an emergency question which I'll ask you, which I asked people, was if you can have one piece of art or anything from an art gallery or a museum that you get to keep, take home and keep of anyone's in any museum in the world, is there one thing that you would like to have? You know what? One thing I hate more than anything else is the word favourite. Right. You know, and that, that idea, those questions, I, I, I've got a real dislike for them because I change my mind all the time. <laughs> you know, I change my mind about which piece of art. Obviously, I've got things that roll on, but I've never got a favourite because I think it's reductive. 
You know, it's like, what's your favourite colour? It's the fa my favourite colour is the one that goes with the colour I put down just before it. <laughs> you know, and I think that, you know, that idea of having a favourite, I think it can be, it's it, it's an uncreative thought. Yeah. You know, because I like the fact that I'm constantly fluid, and I've got my favourite. Now I, I like to be on stage and have a momentary thought, and it passes, and it, you know, it's funny then, and it's gone. Yeah, and so. The idea of having a favourite work of art, I find incredibly stultifying. Sure. Because uh, you know, I, I'm, I love the fact that there's, you know, there's lots and lots of brilliant masterpieces out there and they're constantly swooshing through my eyes and I will constantly be changing. And freshness, freshness and vitality are probably one of the most important artistic, you know, certainly in comedy. Yeah. You know, it's got to be in the moment. I mean, you know... I don't feel like I'm having a nice time this evening because you're asking me good questions and I'm, I'm having fresh thoughts in front yeah. of an audience. And it's a lovely, lovely, lovely experience. Um, but you just, you know, like you get those Hollywood stars who like to be asking the same question, blah, 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 blah. That's so fucking boring. Yeah. I have to say, I think asking an artist what their favourite colour is is my favourite thing that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, well, I, I, wish I, I had done it. I didn't... <laughs> I did what's, what's the best colour, though? What's the best one? <laughs> well, I did, a, I did a presentation for, like, primary school kids yeah. once. I ne I'll never do it again, because the, the questions afterwards are, what's your favourite colour? <laughs> what's your favourite football team? What's your favourite car? Yeah. Like, oh, God. Do people, cause as a comedian, people come up to you with jokes. Do people come up to you with, like, here's a colour I've made, or here's... Oh, they you, should draw, stuff. you should draw a picture of... Uh, people this... give me portraits of me. Right. That's what I get. Oh, yeah, okay. I get sent a lot of portraits of me. Yeah. Some of which are quite difficult. Yeah. <laughs> like one woman, I was at a book signing, and she sort of just plonked this thing like one of those sort of glass domes on the table. Yeah. And it was a, a sort of Janus-style portrait with two faces. It made out of felt. It looked like something you'd got out of a U-Bend. <laughs> of me. I've still got it. I'd like to see. You must be able to, you must be able to make something out of, out of all those. Stick, gonna, stick I, all those I, on a pot. I'm going to have a show of them one day. Yeah. You know, like, of, of portraits that people have made of me. Because I've got quite nice. a lot of them now. Yeah. yeah. There was great. a guy who gave me a plate with a portrait of me. Because I'd made him a plate with the word enough on it in gold as his uh, retirement present. <laughs> because he used to say, when he was working, he'd say, people say, can you do this for me? And he'd go, and he'd show him a plate with the word enough on it. <laughs> I've got enough on my plate, he'd say. <laughs> yeah, it's a weak joke, isn't it? You've got a quality audience here, you see. Oh, they won't take any See, shit. That, that kind of office joke is just not going to wash it here at <laughs> the Square Theatre, is it? <laughs> and, uh, oh, look, when you were, you used to work, did you work, this might not be true because I might have got this on Wikipedia as well, did you work as a sandwich maker and a hairdresser? I did, yeah. What, what is a sandwich maker and a hairdresser? Well, literally, the, you know, the clues in the title, though. really. I made sandwiches, sandwiches for the clients, yeah. The last place you would make sandwiches. I made them a cup of tea and a sandwich if yeah. they were in a hurry. How difficult was it to keep the hair out of all the sandwiches? That wasn't my issue, you know, because when I delivered them, they were yeah. hair-free. Okay. But, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was just a job. It was a yeah. big hairdresser's in, a, in uh, Kings Road. Okay. And it was in that era in the 80s when people came in for a haircut, and I was never sure if they were going in or going out. Because they had, like, casual haircuts, <laughs> you know, that were quite rough cut. Yeah. And I, it wasn't like nowadays, but you really knew. <laughs> like that. They were hair yeah. But, yeah, oh, that's good. it was an interesting time. Well, I can't believe you've got sandwiches in head. Does that still happen? Do people, get, do people still get sandwiches when they go to the hairdresser? I doubt it. Imagine getting a sandwich. Imagine realising you had a sandwich made by Grace and Perry and you just ate it. <laughs> could have held on to that. I'd bring... I'd just... Oh, hold on to that. I've got a, fe I've got a feeling about this sandwich... <laughs> Something's going to be good there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you an emergency question or two just to keep people happy. Oh, God, it's, time has flown by. It's been lovely. Let me see what's going on. I mean, you know, like, it's, this is like having Van Gogh on, right? This is basically, isn't it? <laughs> Essentially. And, you know, I, I wouldn't ask Van Gogh if you've ever tried to suck his own cock, would I? That's the thing. <laughs> Have you ever tried to suck your own cock? Yes. Is that what Van Gogh did? <laughs> no, he should have. Maybe if he'd done that, no, he would have been I, happy. I, It was something I knew I could never even no, get even anywhere try. near. In fact, at my age, the yeah. spunk wouldn't even hit my face. <laughs> uh, OK, here's another most question. <laughs> Uh, 
imagine if that's all that survives of all your work. <laughs> Just that one little snippet of tape. <laughs> if you had a finger that could travel through time, what would you do with your finger that can travel through time? Ooh. Yeah, just your finger can go through past or future and, you know, affect things. You're controlling it from the present, but it's in the past or the future. What would All you do right. with that? Oh, God, well, I'd probably go there and I'd probably, like, put it up like Michelangelo. And then when those two fingers are meeting on <laughs> yeah. the Sistine Chapel and I'd go... And I'd just make the fingers not quite point. <laughs> yeah, I might have to be, you know, wouldn't it be like, oh, Michelangelo's a great artist. <laughs> and no, he's not. Look, his fingers don't even meet. <laughs> I'll give me the end for him. Give me the end for him. Let's see, I'll do a random one for the middle, then we'll go back. There's so many, there's, I don't mind wasting my time with this. There's so many things to talk to you about. But I'm going to waste some time with this. Do you think anyone genuinely enjoys skiing? <laughs> I think that's classist, because it is quite fun, skiing. I mean, I don't, I'm too old, I don't, I'll get too battered, because I, yeah. I was never a great skier. My wife and I, my wife was quite a smooth, but kind of conservative skier, and I was like... I just learned very late in life and I just like threw myself down the hill. We'd get to the bottom at the same time, yeah. but I would have fell off six times. <laughs> but I was quicker in between right. the accidents. I'm very, I'm very bad at it. But you are quite sporty, so you're into mountain bikes? Mountain biking, yeah. I'm, I've always been on two wheels. Motorbikes, mountain bikes. Yeah. yeah, I used to race mountain bikes. Yeah, I was really into it. Yeah. I like, cause I, it was nice as an artist. You're, you're not, you are competitive. Of course you are. You know, like everybody's competitive. Whenever... Two men, particularly me, you know, like, I'm sure comedians have a version of it. You know, like, it's what I call the dog-sniffing arses <laughs> conversation, you know. Like, oh, you know, where are you, where are you showing at the moment? We've got a gig on, where are you, where are you, where are you gigging at the moment, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, stop saying, how, you know, potent, fertile, virile are you? You know, where are you on the pecking order of the kind of, uh, the tribe? And I think that artists, you know, they have a version of that. Yeah. But, but what was lovely about mountain biking is you could be nakedly competitive. You know, and you can kind of eat my dust, you know, and you cycle past someone and go, yeah, fucking take that. I'm faster than you. I love that. I love that. And, do you still do, do you still mountain bike? Are you still oh, still mountain bike. Yeah. I don't do racing anymore. No. Though. I'm a bit old now, you know, pushing 60. I did do one, uh, the last one I did was about last year sometime. Right. I did the Olympic circuit out in... Out in Essex. Is that where you always, you always came fifth? Is that is that the sport you said you always in your book? You're saying you always basically if you come fifth, you basically always come fifth. What's good about it's not like road biking where you're in the peloton, you know, yeah. you have to draft people and it's all very tactical. Mountain biking, if you're the fifth fastest person, quite often you'll come fifth. Right. Because <laughs> you know it's slower, but it's very technical. It's you right. against the course. Yeah. So it's quite good. It's yeah, I just like, think should we just not bother doing the race we know where we're going to come should yeah, we go and have but, a cup well, of I, I mean I, I was doing it I started it when I was about 30 so uh, I was doing mainly like older classes of racing and someone once described it as 50 men saying after you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which was nice you know but it was fun I really and it kept me bloody fit yeah you know uh, and so, with with the, um, do, you, do you feel like I think a lot of people know you also more than they'll know who you are, and they'll know you're the sort of work of art, really, of your uh, dressing up. Yeah, it's you are the the image that you portray is probably to a lot of people better known than than anything you actually. Yeah, no, created. So it's kind of useful, yeah. you know, because you know I'm not going to deny the usefulness of being a transvestite. <laughs> you know, when I when I you know I I realised it's PR potential when I kind of popped my head above parapet, if you like, yeah. in, in, when I was up for the Turner Prize. Because I, I, when, I, when I was up for the Turner Prize, they asked you for like a PR photo, you know, like, that they'd give to the press. So as a mischievous act, I had a photograph of me, it's the head and shoulder shot with a beard, right. like just as a bloke. Yeah. And I gave them that photo to give that one to the press. Not one paper used the photograph. Yeah. They all had a photograph of me dressed up as a peasant woman with a Kalashnikov. <laughs> <laughs> that somehow they got hold of, you know. And it was, I just like the fact that yeah. I, you know, they, would, they could not bend them. I mean, the, the press, they have, you know, they, it's like the, nowadays, the press say, you know, Twitter storm about X, you know, and it's some terrible controversy about blah, blah, blah. And then you look at it, it's like one bloke on Twitter somewhere in his front room going, I fucking hate this. You know, it's like, the, but, the, but, the, but the journalist has read this one tweet. Yes. You know, and it's like, it's not like they think. No. And so I think that 
the, the press, they, they do have a kind of distorted view of, they want, you know, they want uh, things to be antagonistic. Yeah. And do you, re do you read reviews of, of your work? No. No. Good or bad, I don't. I, I, my friends read them and they say, oh, so-and-so was nice about you and so-and-so was shit about you. Yeah. And that's fine, you know, that's great. But I don't, because they, they can distort. I never, I, on Twitter, I've got a lot of Twitter followers, but I don't read below the line. I'm sorry to all, anybody here who follows me on Twitter, but I don't read below the line because I, you know, most people are nice. Most yeah. people are nice and that's fine. I'm sure all the people here are nice. But there's always a few arseholes and they'll upset me. And I right. don't want to read them. Does it, would, would it upset you? Because it isn't the whole, like you say, the whole point of it. I mean, to make people think is make people have opinions. You know, there isn't a, like a... Yeah, but they don't get your jokes. That's the thing no. that really upsets me. <laughs> is that you make a joke and they take it literally. Yeah. And I think you'll find. I think you'll find. You know, that blah, blah, blah. And I think, oh, Yeah. Yeah. And so, like with the with the homeless person on the carpet, is that? Is yeah, that I think you'll find that's insulting to yeah. the homeless <laughs> community. You, you know, that a lot of the people would be really offended by that. Yeah. And somebody asked me about that. Yeah, what, what, you know, what? Here's a good question for you, Richard. Okay. When was the last time you were offended? Um, yeah, I mean, see, if offence has a purpose, doesn't it? I, I don't really. Yeah, come get, on, answer the I question. I don't really get offended. By, <laughs> I don't really get. There's things I think, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's stupid. But I don't really get massively like. I'm so furious about it. Even when the, you know, I guess it'll be, um, uh, you know, Jacob, Jacob Reese. Well, like, that's it, the, the whole Grenfell fire thing, because I lived near to... Were you offended by it? Or just I, was offended by the, I, was, I was offended by the reaction to... I was offended by the way the Tories reacted to that. But, like, not offended, but, like, I was furious. I wasn't, like, yeah, I wasn't like, yeah. oh. It was, you know, because it was... And I lived around that area, and the feeling in the street was, you know, you was so... Yeah, palpably yeah. awful and then you're thinking god if this had even happened like uh, the timing of it was just after the election or something like that wasn't it and it was if it had happened any just before yeah. yeah and it was it was it was just such a, an awful feeling and so for, so for jacob reese mogg to say um those people should have used common sense as you should leave that was quite i was sort of i'd say close to being offended about that one okay Fine, fair, enough. fair <laughs> enough. Back to the comedy. <laughs> but, you know, but offence, that's what comedy, and, you know, you're meant to be offending people. That's what that thing is. It's not meant to be people going, oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's, that'd be great if there was a carpet with a homeless person on it. You're meant to, you're asking people to, to think about something that they, that they walk past every day, aren't you? Yeah. So, so you are trying to offend the sensibility, not of the, not of the homeless person, but of the people who were walking past and not caring about, about the rich people who were walking past Yeah, the and rich not people about. are much more fun yeah. to offend than, you know. But rich people, often we love the fact that, you know, there's those up there, the 1%, you know, the terrible rich people. But actually, I think what we've got to start learning in our modern world is that those, those people who are like uh, the kind of, um, the ones that are doing well out of society, they come quite a way down, you know. Like... One of the statistics that I was reading recently was that, you know, when the Occupy March was in New, New York, you know, like, oh, the terrible 1%, oh, rich people to root raping our country, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, most of the people on that march, you know, earned quite well, you know, like yeah. 100,000 plus. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like, it's, it, you know, it comes down quite a way. Maybe like 20% of the people are doing quite well, you know, people with university degrees who live in the middle of towns, who've got a nice house. It might become down a bit, a bit lower than is comfortable yeah. for a lot of the people who like to point a finger at this so-called super rich. Well, and any you know, we live in a planet where anyone can do that to anyone. Anyone who lives in the United Kingdom, there's someone in the world who could point at them and go, "You're pretty much super rich." Oh yeah, yeah, we're so, all in the one yeah, percent yeah, globally. So, all of yeah, you, yeah. all of you. So you know, no, no one, no one is prepared to do that bit of maths of looking downwards. That's, that's I suppose, that's the problem. Yeah, but it's, I think often we we kind of think of this imaginary kind of you know world where there's sort of unbelievably wealthy people. Yeah. And it might be that no, relatively sort of mid nice upper middle class people might have to pay more tax. Yeah. And they might not have to be able to go to the Seychelles to check whether the dolphins are choking on plastic straws or not. <laughs> You might not be able to go on that third holiday. <laughs> but I mean, all of this, all the way the world is at the moment is, is from your point of view, is as an artist, is pretty... So Brexit was pretty good for you? Brexit was great for me. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, I, I got a TV show out yeah. of it. I had an exhibition and a stage show. Yeah, out of, uh, yeah really, really milked it to the <laughs> max. Because it showed something very interesting about Britain. You know, it showed... Yeah. 
It showed that there were divides in our society that weren't necessarily on the classic part lines, political or, or even class lines, you know. And I think that, that was interesting. As a kind of amateur anthropologist, yeah. it was really interesting. And I think that, you know, um, going back to what we were talking about almost at the beginning, about sort of emotional investment, that people are starting to learn now that uh, facts and kind of ideology and economics aren't necessarily what politics is about. No. It's more about emotions. And I think that the right, on the whole, have tapped into those narratives more effectively than the left. You know, when you, you, you can... I mean, because the, the, the trouble is now, of course, is that, the, you know, the left tends to be the party of the degree-educated. Yeah. You know, and then they're, they're very invested in this idea of education and facts. Yeah. And so they will bash the opposition. Oh, you don't understand it. You're all dim. Don't you know you're going to be worse off when we leave the European Union? And it's like, mate, they don't give a shit about that. Because <laughs> it's not about that. It's about what they feel, which is completely subjective and often quite not necessarily that, you know, yeah. um, going to do them any good. But it's how they feel. Yeah. It's something we need some more empathy for the feelings. One of the things you learn in therapy are never wrong. You can't criticise someone and say their feelings are wrong. How you feel is how you feel, even if it's bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> and as an artist, it, is your job just to commentate and sort of step back and watch these things and, and step in and take, <laughs> take the money from the rich people who want to buy works parodying themselves? Yeah, I don't uh, feel is overly it, is it obliged change? to be a great campaigner and activist no. and social justice warrior. No, no I, I feel that my job is to do what I want. Definitely. Yeah. And that's, you know, where I'm drawn, where I think there's emotional charge in the world, you know, and where it's interesting, where I'm drawn, you know, as, obviously like everybody else, I'm a human being, I'm a, you know, I'm a mid-ranking professional, and like everybody else, I become 8% more conservative with every decade that my <laughs> life passes. <laughs> Well, look, it's been a massive honour to have you here. I'm just going to... I had, like... Usually I do two pages for people. I've got six pages for you, and uh, that's made it very difficult to do my job. So I hope you're happy with yourself for being so interesting. I've had a marvellous time, Oh, Richie. good. I'm I've very glad really, you I've have. I've had a really fun time um, up here. No, it's been really lovely to have you. Um, and uh, let's see if there's anything that I should end on before we go. No, I'll just peter out, and we'll pretend none of it ever happened. Um... <laughs> I was, I was, well, I was interested in that stuff about the, in the book about the, you were talking about going to your school reunion and you kind of remember stuff about other people but nobody really remembered your... Do you remember, do you remember writing about yeah, this? I was shut down as a teenager. Yeah. You know, it, it, it might be hard to imagine sitting up here now but I was quite shut, tamped down emotionally because yeah. when you close your emotions down because you're, you know, you're traumatised or you're numb because of whatever was going on at yeah. home and stuff like that, you can't just turn the, the difficult ones down. You turn the whole lot down. And so men particularly, they kind of, they, 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 they nip up their emotional sphincter and everything closes down, the good and the bad emotions. Yeah. And so you're not yourself, you know, you're not a generous, vulnerable, giving, receptive. You know, relationships are based on mutual impact. You know, like you, you, you affect me and I affect you and that's how intimacy happens and that's how an audience happens and all those things, you know. And... I was tamped down, so therefore at school I, did, I was a low-impact individual. Yeah. And uh, so it, I was struck that people couldn't say, oh, Grayson, oh, yeah, you were the one that stood up in Glider. <laughs> None of that. Nothing, yeah. No, I was just that bloke at the back who was between the other two people, like the bloke whose name began with P.A. and the bloke <laughs> whose name began with P.G. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think you, you say you were in the book, I think you used the word numb, and it just it seemed such a... Um, you know, evocative word to use, but also, you know, it's just so, so sad. So, the, was the, the therapy got you out, out of this? You, were you... Yeah, totes. Yeah. Yeah, six years of therapy, and I was off. <laughs> <laughs> Best money I ever spent. Yeah. And I think nowadays, you know, when I first had it, you know, it, was a, it was a relatively rare thing. You know, yeah. people, but now the middle classes, they love, they love their therapists. Yeah. And I think it's, it's healthy. You know, people, you can be kind of biased against it, and you can say... Oh, you know, I don't, artists particularly are very wary of it yeah, because yeah. they think that their quirks and their fuck-ups are their character and their creativity, you know. Yes. But it's not like that at all. You know, you might be surprised how after your therapy, like I always describe it as someone clearing up the tool shed. You yeah. know, you've still got the tools, but you ain't got none of the rubbish. 
you know, <laughs> and you, you've got more access to them. And I've, you know, for me, it's supercharged my creativity. My work went through the roof when I had therapy because it not only gave me a subject, it gave me the, the, the ease and the, knowledge, the relaxed ease with myself and I wasn't kind of shamed of myself and I was using all of my faculties. Yeah. And it was like, you know, it was enormous... And it's the most moving... Like, going to therapy was like going to the cinema every week and watching a weepy where I was the hero. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's going to be... You might find that you're the, you're the kind of uh, anti-hero. I don't know. But, you know, it's like, it was great. I really, yeah. really enjoyed it. And uh, it was great for me. Yeah. So, yeah. The and it seems to have opened up, because, you, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up, but you do... You know, as well as the art, you're doing the TV presenting. The, the book's great. The, the Scent of Man is a great book. Uh, and the uh, you're sort of doing basically live comedy shows, which aren't yeah, quite Next year, I've got a show in uh, that'll be this time next year. I've got yeah. a 15 date tour of the theatres in Britain. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what it's quite going to be about yet, but I'll tell you one thing: it will surprise you. Because uh, <laughs> I like testing. The, I like the audience. But I like the cringe laugh. You know, the audience. Yeah. Oh no, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's what I like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, there can't be that much that, uh, from your life that people go yeah, no, people, no, 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 I like the audience to think <laughs> yeah, about no, themselves I, I, I think, know. oh, that's me oh. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah I, I like that um, oh, Terrific, well, I, we'll look forward to whatever comes next uh, I'm going to buy one of your pots one day That's my, that's my You are ambitious Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Grace and Perry Thank you very much Thank you We'll be back next week, hang around You have been listening to Rahalastapha with me, Rich Tang, and my guest, Grayson Perry. Thank you to Pest for providing this music. Thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre. Thank you to everyone at ACAST, everyone at Go Faster Stripe for all your fantastic assistance in making these shows. I'm indebted to my producer, Ben Walker. This is a fuzz. GoFasterStripe.com and Sky Potato Production. Go to rahalastapha.co.uk for more information about this podcast and how you can subscribe and help us make more. Love you. Bye.